Good evening. Election in Latin America, building a democracy under the shadow of the United States, Kenosha reactions, real fault line in the administration, and the United States Senator channels former Senator Joe McCarthy as he claims communist infiltration in the government. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, November 21st, 2021. And Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro held a meeting Saturday with international observers participating in today's local elections. Maduro said, we're not renouncing the transition to socialism. These elections are a golden opportunity to guarantee the doors of economic stability are opened and deepen the new economic system. Quadri Oldele is of the is a leader of the Trade Union Congress of Nigeria. He's in Venezuela as an election observer. I'm from the Trade Union Congress of Nigeria. Uh, Trade Union Congress of Nigeria is the second uh, labor center in Nigeria, which comprises of about 37 juniors, which cut across the banking sector, the transport sector, the food and beverage, the medical aid, etc., etc. So I've come to be a delegate of the Trade Union Congress of Nigeria to monitor the 2021 Venezuela governor's and mayor's election. So I'm here as an observer to see and to be able to tell people about the free and fair election that is going to happen on Saturday. So I'm very glad to be here today. Maduro insisted Venezuela has turned the corner on its economic problems and had opened the door for criti- that had opened the door for criticisms by the United States and other opponents of what officials called the Bolivarian Revolution, represented by former President Hugo Chavez. Maduro added that Venezuela now produces 95% of its own food, restored oil exports uh, exports after a 14-month hiatus, and can celebrate 29 successful elections over the past 22 years. And in more South American news, today millions of citizens of the nation of Chile are voting to elect a president, 155 lawmakers, 27 senators, and 302 regional councilors to serve over the next four years. There are more than 15 million voters in Chile and more than 70,000 Chileans abroad. It's expected that an independent candidate not not tied with either the conservative independent democratic union or the center-left socialist party will be elected. Over the last two years, Chileans regularly gathered in the capital of Santiago to protest uh, low pensions, high transit fees, and an old guard political class. The protest, known collectively as Astaido Social or Social Outbreak, led to a rewrite of the Constitution written during the regime of former dictator Augusto Pinochet. Uh, they have propelled those protests have propelled a 34-year-old leftist, Gabriel Boric, into a serious contender for the job. Boric's opponent is ultra-right former Congressman Jose Antonio Cost, often compared to Donald Trump and Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro. He's seen his poll numbers rise dramatically in recent weeks. Banners praising Trump have been seen often on the campaign trail. The growing strength of the right is uh, generally seen as a result of exhaustion with the constant protests and Coast's law and order message. 
And last week, elections in Nicaragua returned Sandinista President Daniel Ortega to office with 75 percent of the vote in elections with more than a 60 percent turnout, but labeled by President Joe Biden as a pantomime election. Former New York Times reporter Stephen Kinzer covered Central America when the United States was virtually at war with the country's Sandinista movement. He's the author of Bitter Fruit about United States-sponsored military coups in Guatemala in the 1950s. Although Kinzer has been criticized on the left as an errand boy for the Reagan administration, he insists he condemned Reagan's contra war in the 80s and that many old Sandinistas have been jailed by Ortega in the run-up to the election. Ortega took over this movement and many of the people who ran the Sandinista government during the 1980s then quit the movement. Ortega went on to craft a political system in which he could get elected president by 35 percent of the vote, which he did, now has been in power for 16 years, has named his wife as vice president and co-president, as he calls her, essentially trying to groom his son or his wife to take over after him. There was supposed to be an election just this month in Nicaragua. All six of the major candidates who stepped forward and expressed interest in running against Ortega were arrested during the summer. So now uh, this little Central American country has emerged as one of the most uh, sharpest, harshest dictatorships in the entire Western Hemisphere. People tried to protest at the beginning of 2018, and there was a fierce government crackdown in which Ortega sent the police out to shoot down demonstrators with live bullets, and they killed over 300 of them. So now you've got a situation where almost all the opposition figures are either in exile or in prison, and the United States has joined in uh, a lot of denunciation of what's happening in Nicaragua. This, of course, causes a lot of people to wonder and worry because the United States has been intervening in Nicaragua for generations. In this case, unlike what I think is happening in places like Venezuela and Cuba, there really is a situation where a one-man dictatorship has taken over and made any prospect of change uh, very difficult. Is this because after years of bitter conflict with the United States, this time in the future they can't be so nice? This is so true. However, uh, all those Sandinistas who were fighting against Reagan's Contras in the 1980s are now in jail. The leading female guerrilla of the revolution, Dora Maria Tellez, who led 4,000 troops in battle at the age of 22 and took over the biggest, the second biggest city in Nicaragua during the revolution, is in jail. Sergio Ramirez, who was the vice president under Ortega and is the country's leading novelist, is in exile. Victor Hugo Tinoco, who every day was getting up at the UN and denouncing Reagan, is now in jail. It's not that the Sandinistas themselves learned a lesson and then have had some ideological evolution. Those Sandinistas are all in jail. Are we heading into a new period of uh, unrest and instability in Central America with the migrations that have been coming to the United States is caused by climate change and you know modern problems they didn't have in the 80s? It's not just because of natural forces. Climate change is definitely a driver of migration and a problem in Central America. But it's not the climate change itself. Climate change affects many countries. It's the fact that these corrupt governments 
are not facing the problem and have no incentive to. These leaders are not there to deal with big problems like climate change. They're there to steal money and repress their own people. That goes not only for Nicaragua, but also for Guatemala, for Honduras, where there's going to be an election this week. And the president has been essentially named in court documents in New York as a major drug trafficker. Two former presidents of El Salvador who've been accused of corruption at home have been given asylum in Nicaragua by Ortega. Central America, which is a part of the world we've sought to dominate for so long with such awful results, is going to become more of a problem for the United States. And that's former New York Times reporter Stephen Kinzer, covering, who covered Central America in the 1980s. But senior editor at Black Agenda Report, Margaret Kimberly, was in Nicaragua last Sunday to uh, unofficially observe the election. She says the elections were as free and fair as any United States election and that criticism of Ortega is out of place in a country that's made war on Nicaragua. We saw a, a transparent and open election. Uh, the opposition groups who were backed by the U.S. tried to dissuade the public from voting, but the turnout was good, more than 60 percent, comparable to what we had here around this time last year. The group I was with, we were a delegation from Black Alliance for Peace, seven of us, and we traveled to the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua, that region is where most of the African-descended people live, in addition to some indigenous people and mestizos. But we saw people able to vote as they pleased. The ballot showed all candidates. The opposition parties campaigning had election signage all over the country. We saw people able to vote for whomever they wanted, but the end result was a resounding victory for the FSLN. That's the Sandinistas party with some 75 percent of the votes. The United States take uh, issue with that. They, I'm looking right now at their uh, press statement from the Secretary of State of the United States saying that Nicaraguans are denied their ability to vote in free and fair elections. What's going on with that? That's just a lie. The people who are in jail have violated Nicaragua's very sensible laws. There was a coup attempt in 2018 sponsored by the U.S. All the people killed, by the way, were Sandinistas. After the government put down this attempt, they passed an amnesty law. They gave amnesty to anyone who made a commitment not to interfere with the government again. Some of these people also take money from the United States government. Nicaragua has a law that says you can't run for office if you take money from a foreign government. In this country, only U.S. citizens can make campaign contributions, so there's nothing wrong with this law. But these are people who violated these laws, which are sensible. Some of them were never presidential candidates, so it's just not true that any presidential candidate was kept from running. There were six presidential candidates, including President Daniel Ortega. The U.S. now is pursuing their belief that this was not a fair election, and they're now going to implement sanctions against Nicaragua. Sanctions are a war by other means. And people in this country, if we're anti-imperialist or even people who believe in ethics and international law, we must first oppose U.S. sanctions. And that punishes people, the Nicaraguan people, because they dare to have a government that the U.S. doesn't like. And this is a war crime. We're talking about collective punishment against a civilian population. And people need to know what sanctions are, what they do. When the U.S. sanctions a country, it's not just a matter of Nicaragua can't do banking with the U.S. 
it also means that the U.S. will sanction any country that violates the U.S. sanctions. In fact, they become international, and that's why sanctions are so devastating all around the world. But the goal is to make war against a country without actually sending troops, which the U.S. has done in the past. There were Marines in Nicaragua in the 20s and 30s. So what's going to happen now? No, of course, it's horrible, and it's something that uh, people of conscience must speak out against, and we can't allow ourselves to be fooled into criticizing Ortega. Um, that's not, um, it's not our business, frankly, what issues Nicaraguans have with each other. That's for them to figure out. But the problem with countries like Nicaragua is the people who oppose are also doing so on behalf of the United States. And that is something that people must keep in mind when they hear anything about how the country is run. Margaret Kimberly is senior editor of Black Agenda Report. Meanwhile, Nicaragua's National Assembly voted last week to ask President Ortega to announce the to pardon me, renounce the Organization of American States Charter and permanently leave the regional forum. Twenty five nations voted in favor of the resolution and seven member states abstained, including Mexico, Honduras and Bolivia. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. In more international news, tens of thousands of people demonstrated through central Brussels today to protest reinforced COVID-19 restrictions imposed by the Belgian government to counter the latest spike in coronavirus cases. Shouting freedom, freedom, freedom and singing the anti-fascist song Bella Ciao, protesters lined up behind a huge banner saying together for freedom and marched to the European Union headquarters. Amid the crowd, the signs varied from far-right insignia to the rainbow flags of the LGBT community. The World Health Organization said last week the Europe was the hotspot in the pandemic now. Anti-lockdown protests in the Netherlands and Austria also led to violence and dozens of arrests. And here in the United States, emboldened by the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, armed civilians patrolled the streets near the courthouse with guns in plain view. A local resident patrolled the street with a rifle and a handgun last week. Among the people at a pro-Rittenhouse rally on Friday was Mark McCloskey, who pleaded guilty in June to misdemeanor charges stemming from when he and his wife waved a rifle and a handgun at Black Lives Matter protesters outside their St. Louis home in 2020. Republicans, including former President Donald Trump, have applauded the verdict, standing by Rittenhouse as a patriot who took a stand against lawlessness and exercised his Second Amendment rights. President Biden, who is critical of Rittenhouse, House during his campaign was more reserved after the verdict. Well, look, I stand by what the jury has concluded. The jury system works and you have to abide by it. But Vice President Kamala Harris, a former prosecutor, was way more, way more critical of the verdict. The verdict really speaks for itself. As many of you know, I've spent a majority of my career working to make the criminal justice system more equitable and clearly there's a lot more work to do. And that's uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, possible crack in the unity between her and the president with Pete Buttigieg waiting in the wings, a possible candidate for president. Meanwhile, protesters angry with the verdict spoke out across the country, but without the size or intensity of the protests during the summer following the killing of George Floyd that culminated with the wounding of a black man, Jacob Blake, by cops in Kenosha. In Chicago, Jesse Jackson spoke. Well, Biden said law is the law. I don't believe that. So we must change the law to make it just law. Law is the law is not enough for me. We must change the law. Yeah. 
And that is Jesse Jackson in Chicago. In New York, a protest began last night at the or the other night at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn before marching off into the night. I wasn't surprised. I mean, we've been seeing a lot of these sort of cases uh, involving white supremacy. And, you know, I, I, was, I was furious, but, you know, I can't say I was surprised. It's killing all of us! Uh, I feel like these kind of verdicts are going to kind of remain the same. I don't think we're going to get any sort of real justice anytime soon, which is why it's important that we all, you know, organize and start to think about reform in a serious matter. Armed vigilantes, when they go out and and threaten people, they, they're doing that to actually make people afraid. Today's vert, it, it blew my absolute mind. It, it destroyed my very faith. Well, not that I had much faith in the justice system to begin with, but whatever, whatever inkling was left, it's gone. Absolutely gone. This is the way the system actually works. It protects white supremacists like Kyle Rittenhouse and puts away everybody and puts away everybody else. Whoever the system uh, doesn't feel is, is, is worth it. So it's not going to change anything. It this system was not built for you, I promise you. They can throw you away in five minutes and forget about you. Look at the, the struggles that we see today. And that was some of the reactions in Brooklyn the other night. In Dallas, Texas, usually a conservative bastion, about 30 people protested the verdict and met with Rittenhouse supporters. They're slandering Kyle Rittenhouse, a uh, boy who protected himself when a bunch of criminals tried to attack and bury him. And um, they hate him because of unknown reasons, but you know. He's a total American hero. He defended himself, used his Second Amendment right, and they're mad at him for white supremacy when he shot three white people, which makes no sense. Rittenhouse supporters on Capitol Hill include far-right Representative Matt Gates, a staunch supporter of former President Trump, who offered Rittenhouse a job. Kyle Rittenhouse would probably make a pretty good congressional intern. We may reach out to him and uh, see if he'd be interested in helping the country uh, in, in additional ways. Just last month, the Justice Department added two top prosecutors to the child sex trafficking investigation of Matt Gates. They allege he paid for an underage woman to cross state lines for sex. It was the subject of what little humor can be squeezed out of the situation by comedian Bill Maher. Today, Matt Gates said he's innocent. He would like to hire him as an intern. Uh, well, it's true. Gates said he hadn't been following the story too closely, but he heard cross state lines and teenager. And this Bill Maher commenting on Florida Representative Matt Gates offering, offering Kyle Rittenhouse a job. On a more serious note, revolutionary activist Carl Dix has been following the trial from its inception. He says the verdict was no surprise, but is a harbinger of things to come. What's going on in America is a sharp division right at the top of society between capitalist politicians who think that the niceties of democratic rule are getting in the way of enforcing their power and they are ready to turn all that over. They are fascists. 
And then on the other side, you have Biden and his people who are trying to heal things and bring them together, which cannot work when you're dealing with fascists. And uh, where the guns fit in is that a lot of the fascist forces want to have extra governmental force. So they want to have their militias and they want them to have free reign to go to protests to intimidate people, because that's why you go running down the street at a Black Lives Matter protest with an AR-15. You're not defending yourself because there's really nothing to defend yourself against. If you didn't want to get in trouble, you just don't go there. You got no problem. But you go there with a rifle so you can intimidate people and shoot them if necessary. And this verdict says, yes, you can shoot them. We will not convict you. It was days and days of full days of deliberation. Three plus days. Three plus days. Right. So who are the bad guys? One, you have to look at the way the judge jumped on the scale with two feet, ruling that Rittenhouse's white supremacist associations, which are real, could not be put before the jury. They were able to put on an avowed white supremacist. That guy, Balchek, who called for the Kenosha Guard and called for people to come down, he proclaims his white supremacy, but that couldn't be gotten into in the trial. The fact that Rittenhouse hung out with the Proud Boys in the months leading up to couldn't be put out. They shielded him and then also said to the jury, you should deal with the moment of shooting, not the whole picture. Just decide whether at that moment in shooting, Rittenhouse has justification to say that his life was threatened. Not looking at, well, there's a Black Lives Matter protest and he and a bunch of people come to it with guns. What is that? That's a provocation. We may be talking next weeks or in a few days about the trial in Georgia where it was clearly some modern day slave chasers thinking that they could hunt down and murder Ahmad Arbery, they may get off too because that sentiment of white people have that right to do that if they want is widespread in America because not only should Rittenhouse be found guilty, should have been found guilty, not only should these guys in Georgia be found guilty, the whole damn system is guilty and we need to make revolution and get rid of it. And that is something that is being more and more put on the table by the actions of these fascists in and out of government and trying to get back in government, but also by the passivity of the Democrats in relation to that. Should we be out there training so we're ready to take on these people? And even if we are much weaker and they have all the guns and all the money, does that even make it more important to do something like that? Why not? We cannot allow this to intimidate us from taking to the streets in resistance. I'm not calling on people to initiate violence, but look, you have a right to defend yourself if somebody is showing that they are going to suppress you through violence. And that is what this government is doing. And that's increasingly what these white supremacist fascist mobs are doing. And people need to be uniting to defend each other, taking that up in the appropriate ways. You can figure out what I mean by that. How is that gap going to be bridged? We're going to bridge that gap by bringing to more and more people what is really going on, struggling with them to face that squarely and then decide, well, how are we going to deal with this? Can supporting the Democrats do that or 
Do we need a revolution? That's what people can find out about at the website refcom.us and the Revolution Nothing Less show on YouTube. And on WBAI as well. That is revolutionary activist Carl Dix. And finally, at a hearing on Thursday, Senator John Neely Kennedy of Louisiana, ranking member of the Economic Policy Subcommittee of the Banking Committee, ripped into Cornell Law Professor Saul Omarova, President Biden's nominee to head the Office of the Controller of Currency, the country's top bank regulator. He accused the Cossack immigrant of being a communist agent. In 2019, you joined the Facebook group, a Marxist Facebook group, to discuss socialist and anti-capitalist views. I'm not a communist. I do not subscribe to that ideology. I could not choose where I was born. I did not, I do not remember joining any Facebook group that subscribes to that ideology. I would never knowingly join any such group. There is no record of me ever actually participating in any Marxist or communist discussions of any kind. My family suffered under the communist regime. I grew up without knowing half of my family. My grandmother herself escaped death twice under the Stalin regime. This is what seared in my mind. That's who I am. I remember that history. I came to this country. I'm proud to be an American. And this is why I'm here today, Senator. I'm here today because I'm ready for public service. Senator Scott, just a moment ago, said nobody on his side has done any kind of communist insinuation of her character and her background. He just said that, so I'm hopeful that Senator Scott and maybe perhaps Senator Tillis or Senator Toomey or Senator Kramer will call out those people that do care. Well, do you not think Senator, Senator Warren is, is a member of the Young Communists? I, I'm not here to answer your question, Senator Kennedy. Senator Warren is recognized for five minutes from Massachusetts. And uh, we don't have time for Senator Warren's response, which was a pretty epic and cool response. Omarova says she was orphaned when her entire family was sent to Siberia under Stalin's rule. She graduated from Moscow State University in 1989 and moved to the United States in 1991. She received a Ph.D. in political science from my alma mater, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And that's some of the news for Sunday, November 21st, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry, our engineer is Max Schmid. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.